You are listening to the Impact Church Podcast. To learn more about Impact Church, visit us online at impactharlem.org. You can also check us out on social media. Good morning. Praise Jesus for who He is. Amen? That's why we're here. We say it every week. We will say it every week that it's all about Him. It always has been. And... It always will be. He is the reason that we do what we do. We're going to continue on in our Psalm series this morning. We will be in Psalm 51. If you want to turn there, Psalm 51. Um, this is going to be a message that I think will challenge each and every one of us spiritually. Um, as I was studying this, and I've read Psalm 51 numerous times, um, it was actually one of the first passages that I ever preached way back in the day when I really didn't know what I was doing. I still don't always know what I'm doing, but I really didn't know what I was doing back then. And I've, I've learned some things just in this week studying Psalm 51. The, the Spirit has just pointed out some new things to me, and I just want to share that with you guys. Psalm 51, really, we're going to talk about sexual sin because Psalm 51, we see that the very beginning, the heading of Psalm 51 says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So we know exactly when this was written. This was written after the prophet Nathan, or when the prophet Nathan went to David to confront him of his sin. And we're going to go back to 2 Samuel and really see what took place and the sin that he fell into. And I just want you to know, if you're in here, man, sexual sin, it's not that it's not that it's, it's any worse um, or it separates you from God anymore, right? Sin separates you from God, but there is something different about sexual sin. 1 Corinthians says every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. It's just different. It does something different to you when you, when you fall into and struggle with sexual sin. So what happened with David? And you may know the story, but what I want to give you are, are some decisions or some, some mistakes or some steps that lead us into sexual immorality. So if you go to 2 Samuel, it will be on the screen. Um, starting in verse 1, it says this, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Here is number one. This is the, the first wrong step for David as he was in the wrong place. We see that this was the time of year when kings go out to battle. And instead of David the king going out to battle, he sends other people to go out. His first step, his first decision that led him to this sexual immorality. It's just being in the wrong place. How many times do we find ourselves knowing what we're supposed to do, but we choose to be in a different place? How often do we just find ourselves just sitting and standing and, and just being consumed in the wrong place? And some of you are like, I would never do that. I would never be in the wrong place. And I get it, man. We, we, don't, we don't really 
put our brains out there and say, hey, so I'm going to choose today to be in the wrong place. Like, that's what I want to do. None of us do that. We want to be in the right place. We want to be where God calls us to be. But oftentimes we find ourselves in the wrong place. Verse 2 says, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Number two is David had the wrong posture. So not only was David in the wrong place, but he was doing the wrong thing. He was just sleeping on his couch. He was just being lazy. He wasn't being what the king was supposed to be. And then he goes up on his roof knowing this isn't the first time that he's been on his roof. He's the king, right? He knows exactly what he's going to see when he's on the roof. And if you think about it, this was the tallest building in this community. So when he stands on his roof, he can see everything and everyone. He is the king. So he has the wrong posture because he already knows when he goes to the roof what he is going to see. Now, I want you to to understand something. That it is okay for you to think that someone is pretty or someone is handsome. That is just human nature. What is not okay for us to do is to is to look and then to begin to consume our thoughts with these other people. It's not okay to, to look and then to, to keep thinking and to keep looking and to keep thinking. And then lust begins to take place. And we're going to see that it says this in verse 3, and David sent and inquired about the woman. So David not only was in the wrong place, not only had the wrong posture, but he had the wrong perspective. Because this was someone that was under him. He was the king. He knew that if he sent, they would come. They had to. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way before, but when when David calls for Bathsheba, she really doesn't have a choice. He is the king, and she has to come. So he calls for her, and then it says this. And one said, somebody said this, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. This is what happens. The Holy Spirit steps in and says, hey, isn't this someone else's wife? Are you sure you want to do this? The Holy Spirit steps in and through someone asked David, hey, are you sure? Do you, do you really want to make this decision? Do you really want to call for her? Do you have people in your life that will step up and say, hey, are you sure you want to do that? Are you sure you want to make that decision? Are you sure you want to take that step? If you don't have those people in your life, man, I I want to encourage you to get those people. And maybe you're like, well, yeah, you're telling me right now. That's cool. I will tell you, but I'm not with you all the time. You need people in your life. You need community around you that will call you out and say, are you sure that you want to take this step? We need our perspective to begin to change. The Holy Spirit through someone steps in and says, are you sure? And we're going to see that David ignores the Holy Spirit and he calls for her anyway. In Proverbs chapter 5, 6, and 7, it is dedicated really to sexual immorality. The only place in Scripture that I know that three chapters in a row are dedicated to this, and I just want to pull a little bit from each one, It's an older guy talking to a younger guy. In Proverbs 5, verse 3, it says, For the lips 
of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. This is what it's saying. Hey, it's going to seem like it's a good thing. It's going to seem like this will, will satisfy you, that this will please you. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. This older guy is telling this younger guy, hey, it may look like it is pleasing. It may look like it's satisfying. But sexual sin always leads to death and destruction. It always leads to that. Proverbs 6 says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? This is what it's saying. This is what we do. And I've told you this before, but, but a lot of us just want to know where the line is. Like, where is the line? Just, just show me where the line is, and then I know on this side of the line is sin. On this side of the line, I'm good. That's what we want to know, right? But what we do is when we, when we know the limit, we try to push the limit a little bit. It's like driving. Like, how many of you drive over the speed limit? There's no cops in here right now, so just be honest. How many of you drive over the speed limit? All right. For those of you not raising your hand, I hope you are in the, the slow lane. Because for the rest of us, the Jesus followers, we, we, we push those limits a little bit. But I've always wanted, right, hey, somebody just tell me what the limit is. If I'm, if I'm driving down Bobby Jones and I know the speed limit is 65, can I go 70? Can I go 75? Can I go 80? Just tell me what the limit is so I know exactly how fast I can go. And that's what we like to do with sin. Just tell me where the limit is. Show me where the line is. But once we, once we know where the line is, the next thing we ask ourselves is how far over the line can I get and still manage the consequences? How far can I, can I pass the limit and still manage what's going on? And then when we ask that question, the very next question we ask is, how did I get here? How did this destruction take place? We can't carry fire close to our chest and not get burned. We will get burned. And Proverbs 7, 21 says, With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. And we know that it's not all at once. It's steps that happen. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes, into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. Sexual sin leads to destruction. It will ruin your life. And maybe some of you, you're sitting out there and you've experienced this before. You've experienced the decisions of, of sexual immorality and how it has impacted your, your family, how, is it, how it's impacted your relationship with Jesus, how it's impacted what you think about yourself, how it's just destroyed so many things in your life. And for some of you, you're, you're making these decisions right now. Maybe today is the day for you to say, man, I'm done making those decisions. I don't want to flirt with the line anymore. I want to flee sexual immorality, not flirt with the limit. Verse 4 of 2 Samuel 11 says, So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Her husband is out 
Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. And then David, in his, in his humility, he's like, nah, man, I got this. I can handle these consequences. Yes, I just slept with someone who wasn't my wife, who is already married. Yes, she is pregnant, but man, I can handle the consequences. I can figure out what to do. So what he does is he calls her husband back, and he says, hey, I want to throw you a party. Thanks for being a good leader. And then I want you to lay with your wife. And man, Uriah, he eats the food. He, he enjoys the celebration. But because his men are still out battling, he says, I refuse to lay with my wife. And so David's plan, is it just doesn't work. So David's like, all right, I still got this, man. I can handle the consequences. I'm just going to get him drunk. And then it still doesn't work. So David comes up with another plan. And he says, hey, I want you to put Uriah on the front lines, and I want you to approach the enemy. And then as you get close enough, I want everyone else to withdraw so he's out there alone. And then send word to me when he is dead. And it, this sounds horrible, right? So we have, we have adultery. We have murder, because this does happen, that Uriah goes out, and then he is killed, and word gets back. And if you jump down to verse 26, it says, When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So here we have a guy that we know as a man after God's own heart, King David, who has now committed at least adultery, right? I don't even know if Bathsheba, like if she even wanted to have a relationship with David. So at the very least, it's adultery. At the worst, it is some type of rape. And then he's committing murder by putting her husband on the front line. And then we're going to see that somehow this man is called a man after God's own heart. How does that happen? Maybe you are struggling with some type of sin in your life right now, and you're thinking, I can never be called a man or a woman after God's own heart. You just don't know me. And you're right, I don't know every detail of you, but God does, and He still loves you, and He still wants to use you. We have the opportunity to respond the way that David responded to sin. If you go to the next chapter, chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, it says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And then this is going to bring us to Psalm 51. But what did Nathan say to David? This is the prophet of God talking to the king, right? And I can just imagine this is not a comfortable conversation that he's about to have with the king to call him out on his sin. So Nathan just comes up with a story to tell him. He said, there's, there's two people in your kingdom. One of them is rich and has a lot of animals. One of them is poor and just has one animal that he really treats like family. The, the rich one was throwing a party, and instead of using his animals for the sacrifice, he used the one of the poor guy. And David is, he is enraged. He is mad. Verse 5 says, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. 
and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, you are the man. It is you. You are the man. He's calling him out on his sin in this moment. And David, has a, he has the option. He can respond however he wants to respond. And then we see in verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Now, while put away really just means to forgive, to, to pass over, because he does suffer consequences for his sin. And I want you to understand that we will always, always, always face the consequences of our sin. Sometimes, it's what David faced, and David faced a lot in his life. His family was jacked up for the rest of his life because of this. He lost a son. He had another son who raped his daughter. And then he had another son who killed that son. And then he had a son who, who tried to overthrow him. His family was jacked up the rest of his life. But his response was, I have sinned against the Lord. There were no excuses, and we see that. In Psalm 51. Psalm 50, so that was the introduction. So Psalm 51, we're about to get into the message now. Y'all ready? All right, Psalm 51 says this, and it starts in a good way. It says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Here's the thing. David is like, hey, no excuses. I have sinned. Have mercy on me. Why? Because he knows that he needs God to do for him what he cannot do for himself. And I hope, I hope that you understand that in this moment, at this point, we are all David. All of us. And we all need the mercy of God. Do you take your sin serious? Because this is what happens, man, and I know this from experience, is that the more we sin, the more comfortable we get with sinning. That the more that we walk away from God, the easier it is for us to just keep walking away from Him. Do you take your sin seriously or not? Or do you make excuses for the way that you behave? Do you make excuses for the, the decisions that you make? David says, hey, no excuses. Have mercy on me according to your steadfast love. He knows that he is loved by God. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Here we have David who, who begins to humble himself before God. And what he's really saying is, hey, if you condemn me to hell, I deserve this. Like, I deserve it. I don't want you to do that, but if you do that, like I deserve that, and we all deserve that. We all deserve to be condemned to hell because of our sin. And then we get the, the rescue mission of Jesus that comes in and covers the sin of the world. David here is just in a humble posture in this moment. He says in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is what I want you to know. For those of you younger ones, 
that just think you're perfect and that you're, you're like Skittles and rainbows and all that. You were born into sin. Like we were all born into sin. I don't care what your teacher told you. The truth is that we were born into sin. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. And here's the deal. Next week we get to celebrate four, four middle schoolers who said yes to Jesus. And we get to baptize them as a, as a symbol of their faith in Him. And this is, this is what this looks like, is that we're all sinners in need of a Savior. And David is saying, hey, even from the earliest of days, I was brought forth into sin. And then he says, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret part. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. This is what hyssop was used for. So let's say a house was condemned back in the day. The, the priest would go when the house was cleaned up and it was ready for use. They would throw hyssop and blood on the house and it would let everybody know, like not in the house, on the outside of the house. It was a, a symbol to let everybody know that now this is fit for use. This has been cleaned. This has been restored. And David is saying, I need you to do that for me. I need you to restore me. I need you to, to clean me up. I need you to, to do what only you can do inside of me. What is your cry to God when you find yourself in this place? Or do you just keep trying to manage consequences on your own? One thing we know is that sin management isn't possible. That we can't manage sin. If we could do that, we, we wouldn't need Jesus. That we don't need to manage sin. We need someone who can wipe away sin. And his name is Jesus. That's what we need. And David is saying, hey, I need you to do that for me. Verse 8 says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. David is saying, hey, I know you're not done with me. I know that you're not done with me. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. David is, is in this moment, up to verse 9, he is in this moment where he's saying, I need you to do for me what I could not do for myself. Notice that God is the active agent in all of this. It's not David, it's God. God, I need you to do for me. I need you to, to blot out my transgressions and my iniquities. I need you to forgive me. David is understanding and he is realizing and he is proclaiming that he can't do it on his own. And in 2023, in America, a lot of us say, I can do this on my own. I don't need anybody's help. I don't need Jesus. I don't need community. I don't need any of this. And I want you to know that without Jesus, man, you are lost. You are lost. And some of you are like, well, I got Jesus and I still feel lost. I get it. But man, there's no hope apart from Jesus. No hope apart from Him. David is saying, I need you. This is the theme of this psalm is I need you, Jesus, to do for me what I can't do for myself. And you say, well, how can, how can David's sins be forgiven? Like, how can, how can his iniquities be 
blotted out? How was this possible? He committed so many just big, heinous sins. And here's the answer. It was reconciled at the cross. Just like your sin and just like my sin, it was reconciled at the cross of Jesus. It was reconciled at the cross. See, our payment for sin is poured out on Jesus. And we get credited for His righteousness. And maybe, maybe you're a Bible person and you're like, well, Jesus wasn't even around when David wrote this psalm, so how did, how did He get forgiven? How is this even possible? And I'm glad you asked that question because Romans 3.23 gives us the answer. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's what it's saying. It's saying that God is the, He is just and He is the justifier. That in His justice, all sin must be paid for, and in His mercy, He delays the payment. And David, because of his faith in the coming Messiah, his sins were passed over, and then in the proper time at the cross, Jesus forgave sin. Because of His grace, He made the payment. He is the just and the justifier. See, all sin has to be paid for. That is, that is Him being just. But in His love and His grace and His mercy, He also makes the payment as the justifier. And we get to claim that as believers. Verse 10 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. This is what David's saying, and this is what I really want to hone in on this morning. He's saying, hey, I, I'm, not just, I'm not just sorry. There's more to it than that. How many of you have kids in this room? All right, how many of your kids have ever told you they were sorry for something? How many of you knew they were lying when they said it? All right, amen to that. Amen to that. Man, so sorry, and this is something that I used to say like when I was dating, even when I was dating Ashley, and probably early in our marriage, she has trained me to be a better person. Uh, but I used to say this, that you should think, like sorry, it shouldn't even get to that point. You should think about your decisions before you ever have to say sorry. Like that's it's just kind of how my brain works. And then I realized that I wasn't really good at that either, so I needed to stop saying that. But sorry isn't enough when it comes to sin. It's like, man, I'm sorry for my sin. That's not what David's doing. David's not saying that I need to be better. David's saying I need to be different. He's not saying I just need to behave better. He's saying I need to be different because of who God is. I need God to do something on the inside of me. And I would say this. We talk about the grace train of of Jesus, I would say that if, if you're not different, then maybe you really haven't experienced the grace of God. Because this is, this is, this is how I look at it. If Pastor Andrew, y'all know we start service at 10 a.m. every Sunday. It never changes. 
if Pastor Andrew rolled in here at like 10.30 one Sunday, for one, we'd be having a, a really good discussion about that. But, and I asked him, hey man, like, what happened? Where have you been? He says, well, you know, there's this train that comes through Harlem, and I got, I got hit by the train. And he's sitting there, and he looks exactly the same as he did when I saw him last time. I would say, hey, bro, I think you're lying. I'm not sure that you've actually been hit by a train. Now, Pastor Andrew doesn't lie, so that wouldn't happen. This is an example. And how much more, if we're hit with the grace train of Jesus, should we be different? There's no way we can say that we've experienced the grace of God and there's no evidence in our life. Now, I'm not, this isn't work-based salvation. You don't have to work your way to Him. We are saved because of His grace, because of our faith in that. But because of the salvation, our life is different. There's just something that happens when we're wrecked by the grace train of Jesus. says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. This is what I noticed. And we're going to close with this. But this is what I noticed when I was reading this this week for the first time ever. This just kind of, the Spirit revealed this to me. There's not one mention of sex. There's not one mention of murder. There's not one mention of lying. There's not one mention of cover-up in this psalm. And we know that that's what David, he wrote this psalm after doing all those things. But there's not one mention of those things in here. And I think it's because these are just the symptoms of the problem. The problem isn't those things. The problem is just sin. The problem is is a heart condition. And David is saying, I need something different. I need a new heart. I need a clean heart. I need your presence around me. I need you to consume me with who you are. Verse 13 says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. This is what David's saying. You're going to use my misery for ministry. You're going to use my mess to share your message. He knows that God's not done with him. And I want to challenge you and I want to encourage you in this place. I want you to know that no matter what your past looks like, no matter what your present looks like, that if we can come to God with a humble posture, if we can confess and we can repent, man, He can turn your misery into ministry and He can turn your mess into a message of hope for other people. He wants to use you. And maybe you walked in here today and you've never thought that God could use you to make a difference for the kingdom, and I want you to know that He can and wants to use every single one of you. He wants to use you. Verse 14 says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. This is what David's saying. Forgiven people, worship. Because once you're forgiven and you experience the grace of God, you can't help but to worship. You can't help but to respond to Him. It's just what you, it overflows out of you. Have you experienced the forgiveness of Jesus? Have you made the decision to follow after Him? Not some religious stuff. Not just saying a prayer, not being baptized, not raising your hand during an invitation. None of that. Have you? 
have you started a personal relationship with Jesus? And if you have, you're forgiven and forgiven people. Man, they can't help but worship. The last two verses we're going to read. It says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not, you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are this. Listen, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. This is what I want you to understand as we, as we get ready to respond. Is that religious activity does not move the heart of God. Religious activity does not move the heart of God. You know what moves the heart of God? A broken and contrite spirit. People crying out to him saying, have mercy on me. I can't do for myself what needs to be done. Forgive me, create in me a clean heart. Renew in me a, a right and a steadfast spirit. Do not take your presence away from me. Consume me with your presence. And I want to experience the joy of the salvation that you have given me. That's what God responds to. God responds to, to a humble posture, one of confession and repentance. And man, that's a daily thing that we need as Christ followers to daily confess and daily repent. Do you need to cry out this prayer? Thank you for joining us at the Impact Church Podcast. For this and other messages, visit us online at impactharlem.org. In the meantime, you can subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it on iTunes, and share it with your friends on social media. Once again, thanks for joining us at the Impact Church Podcast.